This episode is brought to you by Winter Coats. Without them, we will literally freeze to death. Welcome back, everybody, to my faith word chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm back. After a brief hiatus, we are back, back, back. And boy, do we have an incredible lineup of interviews to share with y'all this season. We're so excited to share with you even more stories of some inspiring LGBTQ plus chemists. With that, here's our show. Hi, everybody. Today, we are very excited to introduce to you an incredible chemist and professor. Would you mind introducing yourself? Definitely. Hi, everyone. My name is Andre Isaacs. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I did my undergraduate at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And then I went on to graduate school to do my PhD at um, the University of Pennsylvania um, under the guidance of Jeffrey Winkler. In his lab, I worked um, on a lot of projects, um, but the main project I worked on really was um, the design and synthesis of these novel steroid-derived inhibitors um, of hedgehog signaling. And those were based on um, this alkaloid called cyclopamine. And after that, I went over all the way over to the West Coast and did my um, postdoc with um, Richmond Sarkbang at, at Berkeley. And, and there I focused a lot on the synthesis of diterpenoids, particularly palavicinin. And um, I also worked on a project where we did some radio labeling of this insecticide called chlorantraniloprol. Um, and then I moved back east, <laughs> back to Worcester, Massachusetts, my alma mater. And I've been um, an assistant professor. I started there as an assistant professor. And since then, I've been um, promoted to the rank of associate professor. And so currently a tenured faculty member and um, having a great time out here. All right. Thank you for, for being with us tonight. So let's get started with the questions. Um, uh, let's you know start with the beginning. So I want, we want to hear about your academic journey. Uh, so you, like you mentioned, you did your undergrad at the College of the Holy Cross, obtained your PhD from, from UPenn, and then did a postdoc at UC Berkeley. So can you tell us about your experience throughout these institutions as an LGBTQ plus person? And also, you know, did you feel supported by them? How was, how was the whole um, experience? That yeah, so funny enough, I started off my undergraduate career as a heterosexual. Um, <laughs> like so many of us, like yeah. so many of us. <laughs> Let's be honest, we like, we have a joke when, uh, for, with all my friends from college, like we all leave the hill and then we become gay. Um, <laughs> and so I, I was actually heterosexual uh, when, uh, when I was in college and in a part of graduate school, I came out in graduate school. Okay. So I really didn't have much of an experience with the queer community in my undergraduate, um, at my undergraduate um, college, but I definitely, when I came out in graduate school, I had um, a really big, big um, life change, I would say. Um, you know, and I come from a culture that's fairly homophobic. I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And so I lost a lot of friends. Um, some family members didn't talk to me for a long time. But I really survived graduate school. I have to give credit to my PhD advisor. He was instrumental in keeping me in the program. I tell people all the time, if it wasn't for him, I would probably not have finished my PhD. And, and that's because he saw that I was struggling after I came out. You know, I had a really hard time navigating um, 
you know, being, being in the department, being around like, you know, people who, you know, some people are fairly homophobic, not in my department necessarily, but, you know, at the institution and, mm-hmm. and, and um, in, in, in the city of Philadelphia itself. And so he really pushed me to, after I came out to him to, you know, seek help. And um, he had another faculty member who they had just hired. He said, I, I can't help you. You go talk to him. He <laughs> might be able to help you. And whatever you need, I will support you. And, and that was all one could hear from their faculty advisor, mm-hmm. right? Someone who's like, your mental health is important to me. You surviving this, this transition is critical to my the work we do in my research group. And I'm not going to sur- sacrifice your mental health for progress, for productivity. Yeah. And so he sent me off to, to um, San Francisco. I wonder if that was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> to do a collaboration at Genentech. I was there for a month, a glorious month. Oh, and, um, <laughs> and then I came back and I got like, I was, you know, seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And t- had the best years of the rest of my, my, my program. And so I think his help, you know, in graduate school is a model. I think, you know, that a lot of faculty members can, can look to as a way to, to, to help their students succeed and to even ultimately get the best out of them. And I've taken that kind of like, you know, model into my own um, mentoring um, of, of my undergraduates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a, a beautiful example of, you know, how to, what, what a real ally is, because some people think just because they tolerate you being queer, you know, they're being allied, <laughs> but an actual ally would help you, you know, you know, in my, whatever way they can help you, of course, and give you resources and, you know, give you support. So this is a, it's great to hear that you had that experience with your, with your PI. Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that experience. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. but- the data shows you actually that 14%, I believe, of, of um, queer students who get a, who work in a research lab, right? They, in fact, turn away from STEM. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that indicates that a lot of our, our queer students are having experiences that are, that are fairly toxic that yeah. turn them away from STEM. So to have people who can be supportive, and if they don't have the tools to make you feel comfortable, um, they can at least recognize that their support and, and pointing you to the right resources is going right. to be beneficial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because we see so, this. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I love this topic so much because we see this mentality of like, you know, you're queer, but that's okay. We don't talk about that. And that that's it. And, you know, then we need to talk about it sometimes, you know, because it's just not something you can just ignore. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Beck. <laughs> no, no, you're good. But kind of, so kind of going along with that a little bit, talking about like the influence of your own like PI in graduate school, you decided to go into academia. You're now, um, like we talked about, a professor of chemistry um, at the College of Holy Cross. So why did you ultimately decide to go into academia? And then kind of a two-part question. Um, did you always know that you wanted to potentially end up back at Holy Cross? Like, what was that process for you like? Yeah, so um, to answer your first question, um, I always knew I was going to going to academia. And um, for a moment, I would say in my second and third years of graduate school, I strongly considered um, pharmaceutical companies. I thought industry could be a nice like change 
for me and that lasted for all of like five minutes <laughs> time I thought about it and and that's because I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, a a family of teachers my father was a high school teacher my my uncle was a high school teacher my mother was a, an accountant at a high school and so I was always surrounded by teachers. I tell my friends, I was always sitting in a classroom waiting on someone. And so for me, being in the classroom was exciting, an exciting space. Um, it was a place I was very comfortable with. And so I knew I wanted to teach. Um, I didn't know I was going to end up at my alma mater, to be honest with you. I didn't even consider it as an option. Um, and I didn't even, I wasn't even strongly considering institutions. Um, I mean, applying for, for PUI positions until like, you know, they were like, we, we are hiring someone. And I was like, oh my God, this is definitely an opportunity to make an impact on people. Um, you know, and kind of paid forward, right? So I was blessed enough to have a great um, academic advisor in my undergraduate institution as well. And a number of academic advisors, I would say, in all my professors were extremely wonderful at supporting me and actually helping me unlearn some of the things I, 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 I you know, absorbed from people around me that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't make make it to graduate school and you know they were the ones who helped me unlearn that and replace that with with like a positive outlook on my my future and so i i thank them as well and so the way in which you know they advise students they mentor students their commitment to undergraduate education um was really exciting to me and i thought that was really rewarding and so i needed i wanted to do that so coupled with like my 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 background growing up with mm -hmm. all teachers having fantastic teachers in college and a wonderful advisor in graduate school and my postdoc advisor who was also pretty good i just knew that i needed i had all these examples that i needed to take um and um put together and 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 also um, pay that forward yeah so you kind of found your way to a liberal arts school kind of like accidentally do you think that it was like the kind of like right decision that you kind of like ended up in the in the place that you were meant to be? Oh, of course. I believe that being at a liberal arts college was a meant for me. You know, it's a perfect balance of teaching, um, research, and importantly, service to the institution. And I think unlike our one institutions, um, teaching is so valued at a liberal arts college at a PUI. It's, it's where we spend most of our resources, right? We're in classroom, we're educating, we're mentoring undergraduates, and we're helping them see the world in a way that that they haven't seen the world, right? And we are spending so much time with them, right? You don't get that on an R1 institution where their primary focus is really on their research and their research output. Um, for us, educating students is, is, is critical and it's the number one goal. And our reach, research serves as a means of accomplishing that goal. And so I, I knew immediately that this model was 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 something that that I wanted to do. I also didn't want to be spending all of my time writing grants, um, <laughs> being stressed about having someone's PhD, like you know their PhD are and careers are dependent on on the funding that I had to source, and also the work life balance. I am a man of many interests, and <laughs> you know I love chemistry, but I love a lot of other things. So mm -hmm. I thought for me, a PUI was definitely the right balance. 
Yeah, I think like, so I also went to, like I went to a PUI for college and very, very small school, very small chemistry department. And I think it was like one of the richest environments that I could have been like trained as a young chemist. I think it like really set me up for graduate school in like a way that was maybe a little bit different than like some of my peers. So I just always love like hearing kind of like what motivated a chemistry professor, like, you know, a young graduate student like yourself to kind of decide that that was the path. Cause I think it's so, I, like, I just feel like it's such like a noble career path. Like, cause it, you almost like don't necessarily get all of like the recognition or the, you know, praise as R1, you know, being a professor at like an R1 institution. But I think like the impacts on like the students and future chemists um, might be a little bit greater or just different than 100% big universities. 100% agreed. I think you hit it right. You hit it, the nail right on the head. It's the impact is so significant because when I think back on my own career, I mean, I love my PhD advisor, my postdoc advisor, but (laughs) I developed my passion for chemistry in my undergraduate, during my undergraduate um, years. That's really when I got excited about chemistry though. That's, that's Mm. what, what propelled me you know, forward. And so I, I agree my um, undergraduate years were definitely the most, the most important ones. So this is a, a perfect, you know, segue to our next question, which is, you know, how do you use your role as a professor and as a PI to support LGBTQ plus and other historically underrepresented um, minorities, uh, students in the, in, in the College of the Holy Cross? Yeah, I think it's, 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 this is a very good question. I think there, a lot of people are doing really good work in this area of DEI, you know, where, where you have to be um, designing your course courses um, with equity and inclusion in mind. um, Right. And so as far as race or issues of like um, underrepresented minorities in STEM is concerned, I, I try to do a lot of work to, to improve our retention, right, of students, mm-hmm. because one thing we see across the country is, you know, we have a retention problem in STEM, right. and oftentimes people approach um, students from, uh, with a deficit model in mind. They're coming in, you're underprepared, we can't help you, you just didn't learn enough in classroom, mm-hmm. in, in, in high school, while we're not really evaluating um, our teaching methods, right? And realizing mm-hmm. that the way we teach is kind of outdated, right? We teach the way our our, high, our teachers taught us, who taught the way their teachers taught them. Mm-hmm. And effectively, we're going all the way back to a 90s, 20, 1920s um, form of education, which was not intended for a lot of minorities, right? Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't taught, it's not taught in a way that's accessible. And so people need to look at the literature and see what is out there. And there's a lot of literature about how one can teach and, and um, help um, underrepresented minorities to persist in STEM. And so we got to change the way we teach. I think that's the first thing. I mean, there's data out there that shows you that if you increase your course structure, you can see improved outcomes um, for students across the board, but particularly for African-American and and Hispanic students who benefit more from an increased course structure, more frequent exams, more um, evaluations that are different, right, will result in, 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 in better outcomes. And so that's one thing I've done is I've changed the way I teach. I, I, I now use a lot, a lot of different types of assignments, um, more exams instead of like one midterm and a final, mm-hmm. right? So students can get feedback and immediate feedback 
uh, at how they're doing. And so they will more than likely persist once they get this positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Weekly assignments are, um, is something that I incorporate in my teaching. But also the most important thing is representation, visibility. As a black queer person, people see me and they immediately are like, I wanna be in your class. Mm -hmm. I believe someone like me will help me get through this. And so visibility matters. And so I teach about minority chemists in my course, women and um, racial minorities. So, you know, I teach about Alice Ball and I teach esterification. I teach about like Percy Julian when I mm -hmm. teach about um, spectroscopic techniques and natural product synthesis. And then I also recently I'm teaching about Alma Hayden who um, used IR spectroscopy to kind of um, show that this drug was actually creatine back in the 60s. And, and that work led to the FDA kind of like shutting this compound down. And so, so it's important for people to see representation because mm -hmm. that allows them to believe in themselves. And also to unlearn the negative stereotypes that, you know, we, that are reinforced currently in our media, in our classrooms by, by, by some of our faculty and peers. Mm -hmm. So those are two ways um, I'm currently trying to address um, retention um, for minorities. And also for like for queer students, we don't have a lot of examples of queer chemists out mm -hmm. there, right? So, mm -hmm. so I try to make my class as queer as possible. <laughs> I mean, when I teach that's about a, when I teach about alkenes, I like talk about cis and trans alkenes. I mean, that's a perfect way to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> <right>? that's true. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think like it's just like a more creative kind of it's, like br bringing a little bit of like creative like storytelling into mm -hmm. chemistry because like exactly. this chemistry is done by humans. So like, right? yeah, why not exactly. talk about? their stories I <laughs> yeah. I absolutely love that because I think like I mean when I got to graduate school I didn't I didn't know I probably couldn't even name a single black chemist or like prominent black scientist mm -hmm. and then like queer like that was one of the reasons why we like started this podcast is because I couldn't name any just like queer chemists like from off the top of my head and so just like hearing their story like also like the all of these people like they deserve to like have their recognition mm -hmm. and like their accomplishments like addressed and acknowledged like in the classroom because then like all the only like human aspect of organic chemistry at least that you get is like when you're in your you know named reaction you're learning all your named reactions and they're just like yeah. all white dudes and like that's oh, oh it, yeah you know? tell me about it they're so, you yeah. know so i mean yeah. you gotta you gotta hear like yeah. i don't know you gotta hear about their like accomplishments and their kind of like advancements in the field of chemistry somehow mm -hmm. and and yeah. how are you going to hear about that if not intentionally bringing it up while you're learning these type of concepts i think that's a great that's yeah yeah, thank you. I mean, I try my best. Like, and there are other things I'm learning. Like, how else can I make this class more queer? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So um, I'm I'm continuing. You know, I'm, I'm learning, and I and I, you know, I want to make my class an inclu an inclusive space. Right. And and I think we have to. That's something we have to keep doing. We have to constantly think about ways we can make um, everyone feel comfortable and represented in our mm -hmm. in our in our classes. Um, where can we sign up for your class? Can we take? <laughs> I'll give take you the Zoom. I'll give you the Zoom link after <laughs> you can log in remotely. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess kind of kind of going along along with this uh, line of conversation, you've talked a lot about how you as a professor are attempting, you know, doing your best to create 
inclusive environments for queer and um, people of color in your classrooms. So kind of thinking back to your time in graduate school and as a postdoc, how do you think that graduate departments or you know the next level outside of just the undergraduate classroom can better support queer and trans people of color? Because you know we're we're moving a little bit past the classroom at this point and more into applicable like research labs and and things like that and and more like formal departments that don't exist just around classes so mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that yeah I think um, first you know advisors have to model their expectations for their graduate students and postdocs and oftentimes that work is not done right a lot of professors are are mostly interested in, in their the output that comes from their labs. And we've seen that, we've heard tons of people complain about how their, their, their advisors will overlook um, toxic environments and behaviors from students because that one particular student is so productive, right? At the expense of the health of the overall group. And so I think faculty have to really model that by, by, by one, making it very clear to their research groups that they value diversity and they value everyone's contribution. Um, they have to also show them data that this is important. And, you know, there's that 2015 Labor Journal of Labor Economics paper that came out that analyzed 2.5 million science STEM articles, and they showed that the articles that have the highest impact factor and the ones that are most cited are ones that come from the most diverse co-authors, right? So you have to value what your colleagues bring. And in order for you to value what they bring, you need to, you know, consider, think about your biases, right? We can't ask people to be working in the lab and bring in their full selves if we're not allowing them to bring them full, their full selves through the door, right? One thing I always think of is when you read, when you're when you're reviewing a manuscript, they're they're always one of the promises is this work innovative? Is this work creative? Is this work novel? And you know, I think to myself, how can you expect that work from queer folks and from minorities, uh, POCs, if they're not allowed to bring their creative selves, right? Their full identities through the door when they enter the lab. And so faculty have to really model this. They have to make it very clear that it's a priority to them and, and, and they hold everyone accountable to this goal. So read papers, right? Have students read papers on, on diversity, have speakers come in to talk about their experiences, right? Um, the other thing they need to do is empower students to form their own groups. I think a lot of students in graduate programs are now starting their queer organizations like um, um, OSTEM and, and finding support with each other. So give them funds so they can organize events and they can bring in speakers, right, that will, will, will talk to them about the issues they face. Also think about how you are, the social environment of your lab. Like oftentimes the only things professors do with their students is one, they drink, right? Let's get a keg, a kegger on Friday, or let's go watch a baseball games. Let's just pick the two most heteronormative cis white male things we can imagine to do as a group and call that bonding, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think it's about time we reimagine how we can be in communion with each other as a group. And so those are things I think that can have a significant impact in short order if faculty members just make this a priority. I love that. 
Yeah, I love that. And, I, and, and like you said, a lot of graduate school is starting to make these organizations, trying to make alliances. And so we're, we're trying to, see, we're seeing, you know, a change. At least it's something that we, we're starting to see. So that's a good, a, a good thing. And so switching gears a little bit, you're also one of the co-founding members of Outfront, which is an LGBTQ plus alliance for faculty and staff at the College of the Holy Cross. Uh, I, when I read about this, making the questions, I was like, this is amazing for faculty. That's like great. Can you tell us about how Outfront came to be and what it, are its goals and then what's your experience um, during your time? Oh yeah, so Outfront's really cool. Um, I'm um, it's it's an organization that I've been so proud to be a part of, and it turned out that when I started my job, when I started my position as an assistant professor, there were four of us that were hired in that cohort that were oh, queer. Wow. I don't think the we institution what? intended this <laughs> because I didn't announce I didn't announce I was queer in my application. I, I, I actually didn't even talk about it. Um, and I don't think others did. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, and this shows you the power of like, you know, coming together as a community and, and mm-hmm. having kind of like a, a, you know, like the power numbers, I should say. And, and we were like, wait, we should start like a support group, an organization for faculty and for staff, because a student organization already existed. And, but we didn't have something for, for faculty because we're like, we should have coffee, we should meet up. And so we decided to to start this organization and it was really successful. There were four of us and then all of a sudden there are a hundred members in our in our organization, including allies. What? Hundred members? Oh my god. We right now have an email list of over a hundred members, and we have a a significant percentage of that, almost 50% are queer faculty and staff. Who would have thought Uh that we had that many queer people? at our Jesuit Catholic institution in Worcester, Massachusetts. Let me tell you, the people are hiding. (laughs) The people were were hiding. And and so we we started that organization and we've since, um, you know, I was co-chair for two years. And, and we've had some significant success because what it, what it allowed us to do is not ad, only advocate for each other, but advocate for our students, mm-hmm. right? In a way that students really love and feel supported when faculty who have a lot more leverage over the, 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 the administration, a, lot, a bigger voice can really help to push forward some of these initiatives that students struggle to get through. Mm-hmm. So, so things we've pushed for, you know, um, is like revamping human resources and certain of the tra- in terms of the training. Like, so people are, you know, are, they are made aware of the resources for queer faculty and staff, other things like starting a mentoring program for students, an LGBTQ mentoring program where faculty are paired up with queer students and we work with them. Um, so cute. Oh, that's amazing. Working, that's amazing. Isn't that great? I mean, that it's is amazing. The, the other thing is um, like pushing for gender neutral bathrooms. We have on social events, we got had Janet speakers like Janet Mark has come to campus. And we do a lot of this work um, with the Di- Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things we really pushed for, which came out of a really bad situation when a student, a queer student was harassed, is we push for the institution to implement, actually to, to, to have positions 
for that, that specifically were tailored towards career students. So we don't know of any other institutions that have two positions in student affairs that have LGBTQ in their titles. So we have that's, an that's LGBTQ amazing. position in our multicultural affairs um, division, and we also have a position in our counseling center. And so, you know, those are some of the things we've done. Social events also, we have this coming out coffee house where everyone um, <laughs> tells their coming out stories <laughs> over coffee and hot chocolate. And, you know, it's like dramatic fashion. <laughs> He looked at me, <laughs> kind of like pseudo poetry, mm -hmm. um, and that was really powerful. But the student groups also been really instrumental. We work with them a lot in like pushing forward acceptance and like visibility on our campus. So we have a drag show every year at our campus. We get a RuPaul's Drag Race Queen to perform every year. What? On our campus. We're um, coming to the next one. I know. You, you tell us where the next one is. We're booking a flight to Worcester, <laughs> <Yeah>. Massachusetts. <laughs> the students We're coming. Do this. Yeah, the students do the organizing for that. But um, yeah, every year, so, you know, and, and you got to like, you know, put your 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 fabulous outfits on and show up and, you know, do a, a death drop if you can. <laughs> And uh, so, so those are some of the things, you know, we've been, we've been happy to work on. And our allies have been fantastic. So when this thing happened to that student, when the student was harassed, mm -hmm. the allies came together and bought dozens of rainbow flags and distributed them for everyone. We all put them up in our windows. Let me tell you, you would think you're in Provincetown or Fire Island <laughs> if you walk around <laughs> If you walk around some of these like a college of Holy Cross is the new gay capital of the United it is States. Gay capital. San Francisco <laughs> is shaking, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure the church is very necessarily very happy, would be very happy about this characterization, but we are. <laughs> I can't imagine how empowering the, the, the students must feel seeing all this faculty, like you said, like this people that are in positions of power, basically, being themselves. I, I don't know. I can't imagine having me having that in my undergrad. I, I don't know. I mean, I was already yeah, very out in undergrad. I was. I would have been unstoppable, <laughs> you know, if that was. I mean, I mean we serve some looks. I mean, there's a professor in sociology and anthropology that I'm very, very good friends with. Occasionally, we'll be like, okay, so today we're going to wear, we're going to serve some heels with a long skirt, and and let's 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 serve a look and record this. I <laughs> so, love that. You know, so it's, it's really it. fun. We try to express ourselves because I think it's important for students to see people like them being themselves, mm -hmm. being comfortable yeah. in their skin, and being successful. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think modeling that is is is, is crucial. It's an amazing. Yeah. Job. And thank you so much for doing that and for being part of yeah. that. Honestly, that's amazing. So kind of going along with that, it, I mean, it feels like a pretty good segue into your acclaimed, critically acclaimed social media presence. So we are big fans, Huge fans. of your TikTok content. Um, that's actually how I found out about you. And like the first video I saw, I was like, we have to have him on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Like someday yes. we have yes. to. <laughs> um, so can you kind of talk to us about um, where the idea to start making TikToks came from and how has that experience been for you so far? 
Oh, it came the same way everybody else's entry into TikTok came. The pandemic, March 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all home. We're all sent home from school. And, you know, transition into online education was, was difficult. But also you're stuck inside, right? So you needed to find a way between like spending hours of thinking about, you know, creative ways to engage students online um, with all maintaining your own sanity through <laughs> watching videos. And so friends would send me videos and TikTok videos were um, definitely a mainstay in my inbox. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I think I can, I can make these videos. I can learn how to do transitions. I, I have a PhD in chemistry. This can't be that hard. And so I started making them for fun. And, um, you know, you know, people, you know, thought they were funny. They're like, you're kind of funny, you're hilarious. But really, it didn't take off until we went back to school um, later that summer and into the fall. And I started making videos on campus because that's where I was. And the reception I got was overwhelming. I got emails from students in high school, college students, grad students, postdocs, professors, who were just saying, this is incredible. I cannot believe, first of all, there's a black professor in, in chemistry. There's a queer person in chemistry. How did you make it this far <laughs> with those intersectional identities, <laughs> right? And um, so people were responding extremely well to the visibility that I brought. And so I decided, okay, well, I'm just going to keep showcasing myself. Um, but also it was an opportunity for me to not just be visible, but to show an, another model of how to work and to be present with your students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of my students like being in my classes and they like being around me because I empower them. I, I value them. I tell them that we are collaborators, right? I, I don't, we, let's not pretend I have all this power. You have, you know more than I do in many areas and it's a collaboration of sorts. I give you educate I provide you with knowledge in chemistry you provide me with dances we have with a mutually beneficial relationship and and so you know it's it's been great to showcase how I interact with my students how I value them how I mentor them how I create a space where they can be themselves where they can show their their full selves the the wide range of who they are and and our on our videos I think show that I think so I think a lot of people have been drawn to that because they're, they're starting to see a different way of existing. And that science can be fun. It can be cool. You can be a scientist and still be a dancer. You can be a scientist and still have fun. You can be a scientist and be queer and you can be black. And that all of that, all of those identities and all of those interests are critical and are important in advancing science in itself. And it's time we all recognize that as a, as, as, as an, a value. That's so incredible. I mean, yeah, I just, I hope that you keep up your TikTok presence for years and years and years to come, because I think you're right. I think it, it just injects a little bit of fun and creativity and silliness into chemistry, organic chemistry, like historical things that people hate and have a really hard time, like connecting with. And I think Mm -hmm. that you're doing a really great job at kind of like turning that on its head and and I can't help but think about like how many students, undergrads at your own institution and uh, elsewhere that you're bringing to chemistry or at least making chemistry more accessible for mm-hmm. those people. And that's, I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I felt like I was pulled into this work. I wasn't, it wasn't my intention, but you know, <laughs> once I recognized that people were 
responded to it, um, responding well to it, I thought, well, this is now something I should really consider doing more of because you're right, it is impactful. It, it's mm-hmm. If I think back to being a, a kid in, in college, well, I didn't have role models like that, mm-hmm. you know, where I, I needed other people to tell me that I had a future because I didn't see anyone who mm-hmm. looked like me, right? So I didn't think I could go very far. And so to just see someone else like you and also to see someone who validates your your you know your identities in STEM, I think is 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 a very very important thing. That that's beautiful. So going along with this, do you have any advice for other chemists, specifically maybe professors who want to engage more in like science communication and this type of of approaches and and tactics, but they don't know where to start? Yeah, I mean there is a lot in the literature, right, <laughs> about flipping classrooms, active learning. Mm-hmm. There is just so much you can do, and 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 everyone's different, right? No one's expecting as a faculty member you're going to be able to engage students the way I do, right? That is unique to me. But I think if you're interested, there is so much out there in terms of making students feel comfortable in their in your classroom and so people you know we're academics we're scientists we read the literature you know if you really want to make a change read chemical education <laughs> literature right there there is just a world of knowledge out there um, that people can 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 find information and and means of making you know their classrooms a more inclusive and welcoming space and so uh, you have to be interested in doing this work right, to begin with uh, and I think that's just where it starts. And then if um, any professors out there want to start a TikTok, then they can just go straight to your page and see what right. you've been up to. And we can collaborate, you know, we can collaborate. <laughs> I'm all about collaborating. They can come to my office, you know, and well, at my school, they can come. So a few have come to my office, like, let's make some videos or they can like oh, watch oh. other videos. I'm not the only educator <laughs> on the app as well. There are lots of mm-hmm. other chemists and scientists on there right, who are doing okay. some great work, you know, like I love Chemical Kim. Um, oh, you know, she yes. makes these really cool videos and mm-hmm. she does like all this demonstration, these demonstrations like with... um you know, like, uh, you know, showing students how you, you can, like, you know, react crazy things together, make elephant toothpaste, you know, mm-hmm. like, pulling students in with the, with the demonstrations. And, you know, you have other people who do more, like, educational content, like, oh, let me teach you about SN2, let me teach you about chemical reactions. Yeah. You know, we all find our niche and the things we do um, that we think are useful. And for me, I want to show students that being yourself mm-hmm. is important. And you need to you need to value that, and you need to find a space and work with people who value you in 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 with everything you bring, including their identity and all aspects of who you are. And so that's what I like to showcase. And so yeah, there are a lot of people out there who are doing work through social media, um, others who are who are doing work in their classrooms and publishing great papers, and, and as I mentioned, on active learning. And, and flipped, flipped classrooms. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot out there. People really want to find this, they can. Yeah, definitely. So gearing towards the end of our interview, we asked this for all of our interviewees. And I love this question because of how much it differs across people and how they interpret this question. So who is your biggest chemistry role model and why? And you are allowed to have more than one answer. Oh. Biggest chemistry role model and why? It's so tough because the word role model is tricky for me. Like, there's no one person I'm like, Mm -hmm. I want to be just like that person. There are a lot of people I admire, I would say, in the field. Um, 
um, particularly for the obstacles that they've they've overcome in order to get in um, where they are. And unfortunately, most of them are dead. <laughs> so people I admire. So so people like Percy Julian, um, who was like an African American chemist who really struggled um, early on in his career to find work because of his race, but also made some significant contributions to chemistry. Right. So I, I admire how. Pers- how he persevered, you know, through all through the face, you know, of this adversity that he he, th- you know, through all the adversity he faced, but still committed to a career of chemistry and to making other uh, people's lives better. And for me, that is that is just heroic, right? And to be able to contribute to a field that is rejecting you in ways that that changes it you know, requires someone who's just, just, you know, like so forgiving <laughs> and, and so committed to the, to the, to the greater good. But people, you know, that I've worked with and that I've interacted with my postdoc advisor, Richmond Sarpong, I really admire him as a successful um, black chemist, right. Who is like one of the top like organic chemists in the world, whose publication record is stellar, but not just that. He is really modeling mentoring, right, of all students in a way that I think is, is, is something a lot of people learn from. Like, you know, as someone who's a former postdoc of his, like I still email him from time to time, you know, and he's like reaches out to me. He's like, you know, these are good opportunities for you when you're undergraduate students. And even when I was there as a, a postdoc, he pushed me hard, but he also said, you know, I want you to, you know, consider these opportunities um, and provided mentoring for me. So I really admire what he's done. Um, and I definitely um, think, you know, he is a model for, for a lot of other faculty um, out there. And of course, I got to give like a shout out to my post, my PhD advisor, who, you know, I really credit a lot with my, even sitting here talking to you all <laughs> as a chemist, uh, you know, because, you know, he allowed me to, to find myself and he allowed me to experiment both in the lab and also with my career, right? He never pushed me into one direction, like, okay, you need to go to industry, you need to do academia. He was always saying, so what is it that interests you? What motivates you? How do you see yourself, you know, in the future? What do you want to do the rest of your life? And he allows you to make mistakes and then to come back around, you know, come full circle, like, okay, this is, that was a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to recalibrate. I think, you know, we should go in this direction. So he really allows you to, kind of find your your own voice, I would say. So I, I have to give credit to all those people who really were instrumental in helping me find my voice <laughs> and um, how I wanted to contribute to, to chemistry. That's so nice. Thank you for sharing that with, with us. So our last question. <laughs> so where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Oh, social media. So I use the same handle for... Um, all my accounts. It's drdre4000, Dr. Dre4000, inspired by Dr. Dre, the rapper, and Andre mm-hmm. Andre 3000 from Outcast. <laughs> kind of combine them, and then I had to add a thousand to, to Andre 3000 because you know yeah. I have to copyright. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Dr. Dre4000 on um, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. Very important. Thing. TikTok. Yes, Very that's important. my biggest go, platform. Yes, yes. Go watch his videos. <laughs> Everybody needs to get on TikTok right now. I know. <laughs> well, thank you so time. much. Thank you so much for an incredible interview and for telling us a little bit about your life and your 
current role as a professor and it sounds like you're doing incredible work at the College of Holy Cross and and everybody there at that at that college is very lucky to have you yeah. um, as part of their community. Thank you. And so thank much. you both for having me and keep doing this wonderful work. I mean, you're you guys are also doing great um a DEI work um just with this podcast. And I'm I'm very honored to be one of your featured guests. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, have a good night. You as well. Bye. Bye. This Saturday, we're celebrating our second anniversary of the podcast. Woo, woo, woo. We've got something great planned to celebrate, but till then, thank you all so much for continuing to support us over the last two years. We hope that y'all are being safe and healthy and continuing to support each other. Please, please get your COVID vaccine booster if you haven't already to keep yourself and those around you safe. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQCPod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios. Mm-hmm.